Hello and welcome to Jedi Journal. Today's Jedi Sextant Draw is be dishonest, defend, and embrace overconfidence. Today's story comes from Samuel Butler's 1900 translation of the Odyssey. Now, Butler used Roman names for the gods. I changed them back to Greek. I don't know what other names I should have changed. I only changed Ulysses back to Odysseus, so the rest of them are probably all Roman. But I'm not going to go through the research to figure out which ones are which. I'm just going to go with what I know. So jumping in, we're starting the journey with Odysseus right after he leaves the land of the Lotus Eaters. We sailed, hence always in much distress, till we came to the land of the lawless and inhuman Cyclops. Now the Cyclops neither plant nor plow, but they trust in providence and live on such wheat, barley, and grapes as grow wild without any kind of tillage. And their wild grapes yield them wine as the sun and the rain may grow. They have no laws, nor assemblies of the people, but live in caves on the tops of high mountains, each his lord and master in his family, and they take no account of their neighbors. Now, off their harbor, there lies a wooded and fertile island not close to the land of the Cyclopes, but still not far. It is overrun with wild goats that breed there in great numbers and are never disturbed by foot of man. For sportsmen, who as rule will suffer so much hardship in forests or among mountain precipices, do not go there, nor yet again is it ever plowed or fed down, but it lies as a wilderness untilled and unsown from year to year, and has no living thing upon it but only goats, for the Cyclopses have no ships, nor yet shipwrights, who could make ships for them. They cannot therefore go from city to city or sail over the sea to one another's country as people who have ships can do. If they had had these, they would have colonized the island, for it is very good one, and would yield everything in due season. There are meadows that in some places might right down to the seashore, well watered and full of luscious grass. Grapes would do there excellently. There is a level of land for plowing, and it would always yield heavily at harvest time. But the soil is deep. There is a good harbor where no cables are wanted, nor yet anchors, nor need a ship be moored. But all one has to do is beach one's vessel and stay there till the wind becomes fair for putting out to sea again. At the head of the harbor, there is a spring of clear water coming out of a cave, and there are poplars growing all round it. Here we entered, but so dark was the night that some god must have brought us in, for there was nothing whatever to be seen. A thick mist hung all round our ships. The moon was hidden behind a mass of clouds so that no one could have seen the island if he had looked for it. Nor were there any breakers to tell us we were close inshore before we found ourselves upon the land itself. When, however, we had beached the ships, 
We took down the sails, went ashore, and camped upon the beach till daybreak. When the child of morning, rosy-fingered dawn, appeared, we admired the island and wandered all over it, while the nymphs, Zeus's daughters, roused the wild goats that we might get some meat for our dinner. On this, we fetched our spears and bows and arrows from the ships, and we, dividing ourselves into three bands, began to shoot the goats. Heaven sent us excellent sport. I had 12 ships with me, and each ship got nine goats, while my own ship had 10. Thus, through the long-lived day, to the going down of the sun, we ate and we drank our fill, and we had plenty of wine left. For each one of us had taken many jars full when we had sacked the city at Sisons, and this had not yet run out. While we were feasting, we kept turning our eyes towards the land of the Cyclopes, which was hard by, and saw the smoke of their stubble fires. We could almost fancy we heard their voices and the bleeding of their sheep and goats. But when the sun set down and it came on dark, we camped down upon the beach, and next morning I called a council. Stay here, my brave fellows, said I, all the rest of you, while I go with my ship and exploit these people myself. I want to see if they are uncivilized savages or a hospitable and humane race. I went on board, bidding my men to do so also, and loose the hawsers, so that they took their places and smote the gray sea with their oars. When we got to the land, which was not that far, there on the face of a cliff near the sea, we saw a great cave overhung with laurels. It was a station for a great many sheep and goats, and outside there was a large yard with a high wall round it made of stones built into the ground and of trees, both pine and oak. This was the abode of a great, huge monster who was then away from home shepherding his flocks. He would have nothing to do with other people, but led the life of an outlaw. He was a horrid creature, not like a human being at all, but resembling rather some crag that stands out boldly against the sky on the top of a high mountain. I told my men to draw the ship ashore and stay there where they were. All but the twelve best among them, who were to go along with myself. I also took a goat skin of sweet black wine, which had been given to me by Marin, the son of Euthanes, who was the priest of Apollo, the patron god of Ismarus, and lived within the wooded precept, precincts of the temple. When we were sacking the city, we respected him and spared his life, as also his wife and children. So he made me some presents of great value, seven talents of fine gold, and a bowl of silver with twelve jars of sweet wine, unblended, and of the most exquisite flavor. Not a man nor maid in the house knew about it, but only himself his wife, and one housekeeper. When he drank it, he mixed 20 parts of water to one part of wine, and yet the fragrance from the mixing bowl was so exquisite 
that it was impossible to refrain from drinking. I filled a large skin with this wine, and I took a wallet full of provisions with me, for my mind misgave me that I might have to deal with some savage who would be of great strength and would respect neither right nor law. We soon reached his cave, but he was out shepherding. So we went inside and took stock of all that we could see. His cheese racks were loaded with cheese, and he had more lambs and kids than his pens could hold. They were kept separate flocks. First were the hoggets, and the oldest of the young lambs, and lastly the young ones all kept apart from one another. As for his dairy, all the vessels, bowls, and milk pails into which he milked were swimming with whey. When they saw all this, my men begged me to let them first steal some cheeses and make off with them to the ship. They, then they would return, drive down the lambs and kids, and put them on board and sail away with them. I would have been indeed better if we had done so, but I would not listen to them, for I wanted to see the owner himself, in the hope that he might give me a present. When, however, we saw him, my poor men found him ill to deal with. We lit a fire, offered some of the cheeses in sacrifice, and ate others of them. And then we sat till the Cyclops should come in with his sheep. When he came, he brought in with him a huge load of dry firewood to light the fire for his supper. And this he flung with such a great noise on the floor of his cave that we hid ourselves for fear at the far end of the cavern. Meanwhile, he drove all the ewes inside as well as the she-goats he was going to milk, leaving the males, both rams and he-goats, outside in the yards. Then he rolled a huge stone to the mouth of the cave, so huge that two and twenty strong four-wheeled wagons would not be enough to draw it from its place against the doorway. When he had done so, he sat down and milked his ewes and goats, all in due course, and then let each of them have their own young. He curdled half the milk and set it aside in wicker strains. But the other half he poured into bowls that he might drink it for his supper. When he had got through with all of his work, he lit the fire and then caught sight of us, whereupon he said, Strangers, who are you? Where do you sail from? Are you traitors? Or do you sail the seas as rovers with your hands against every man and every man's hand against you? We were frightened out of our senses by his loud voice and monstrous form. But I managed, I managed to say, we're Achaeans on the way home from Troy, but by the will of Zeus and stress of weather, we have been driven far out of our course. We are the people of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, who has won infinite renown throughout the world, the whole world, by sacking so great a city and killing so many people. We therefore humbly pray you to show us some hospitality, and otherwise make us such presents as visitors may reasonably expect. May your excellency fear the wrath of heaven, for we are your suppliants. And Zeus takes all respectable travelers under his protection, for he is the avenger of all suppliants and foreigners in distress. 
To this, he gave me but a pitiless answer. Stranger, he said, you are a fool, or else you know nothing of this country. Talk to me indeed about fearing the gods or shunning their anger. We Cyclopes do not care about Zeus or any of your blessed gods, for we are ever so much stronger than they. I shall not spare either yourself or your companions, but out of regard for Zeus, unless I am in the humor for doing so. And now tell me where you made your ship fast when you came on shore. Was it the round point, or is she lying straight off of the land? He said this to draw me out, but I was too cunning to be caught in the way, so I answered with a lie. Poseidon, said I, set my ship on the rocks at the far end of your country and wrecked it. We were driven on to them from the open sea, but I and those who were with me escaped the jaws of, of death. The cruel wretch vouchsafed me not one word of answer, but with a sudden clutch he gripped up two of my men at once and dashed them down upon the ground as though they had been puppies. Their brains were shed upon the ground and the earth was wet with their blood. Then he tore them limb from limb and supped upon them. He gobbled them up like a lion in the wilderness. Flesh, bones, marrow, and entrails without leaving anything uneaten. As for us, we wept and lifted up our hands to heaven on seeing such a horrid sight, for we did not know what else to do. But when the Cyclops had filled his huge pouch and had washed down his meal of human flesh with a drink of neat meat, milk, he stretched himself full length upon the ground among his sheep, and went to sleep. I was at first inclined to seize my sword, draw it, and drive it into his vitals, but I reflected that if I had done this, we should all certainly be lost, for we should never be able to ship the stone which the monster had put in front of the door. So we stayed, sobbing and sighing where we were till morning came. When the child of morning, rosy-fingered dawn, appeared, he again lit his fire, milked his goats and ewes, all quite rightly, and then let each have her own young one. As soon as he had got through with all of this work, with all of his work, he clutched up two more of my men and began eating them for his morning's meal. Presently, with the utmost ease, he rolled the stone away from the door, drove out his sheep, but he once again put it back as easily as though he were merely clapping the lid on a quiver full of arrows. As soon as he had done so, he shouted and cried, Shoo! Shoo! after his sheep to drive them on the mountain. So I was left to scheme with some way of taking my revenge and covering myself with glory. In the end, I deemed it would be the best plan to do as follows. The Cyclops had a great club, which was lying near one of the sheep pens. It was of green olive wood, and he had cut it, intending to use it for a staff, as soon as it should be dry. It was so huge that we could only compare it to the mast of a twenty-oar merchant vessel of large burden, and able to venture out into the open sea. I went up to this club and cut off about six feet of it. 
I then gave this piece to my men and told them to find it evenly off at the inn, which was proceeded, which they proceeded to do. And lastly, I brought it to a point myself, charring the end in the fire to make it harder. When I had done this, I hid it under dung, which was lying about all over the, ca the cave, and told the men to cast lots, which of them should venture along with myself to leave it and bore it into the monster's eye while he was asleep. The lot fell upon the very four whom I, had, I should have chosen, and myself made five. In the evening, the wretch came back from shepherding and drove his flocks into the cave, this time driving them all inside and not leaving any in the yards. I suppose some fancy must have taken him, or a god must have prompted him to do so. As soon as he had put the stone back in its place against the door, he sat down, milked his ewes and his goats all quite rightly, and then let each one have her own young. When he had got through with all of his work, he gripped two more of my men and made his supper off of them. So I went up to him with an ivory wooden bowl of black wine in my hands. Look here, Cyclops, said I. You've been eating a great deal of man's flesh. So take this and drink some wine that you may see what kind of liquor we had on board my ship. I was bringing it to you as a drink offering in the hope that we would take or you would take compassion upon me and further me on my way home. Whereas all you do is go on ramping and raving most intolerably. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How can you expect people to come see you anymore if you treat them in this way? He then took the cup and drank. He was so delighted that the taste of the wine, or with the taste of the wine, that he begged me for another bowl. Be so kind, he said, as to give me some more, and tell me your name at once. I want to make you a present that you will be glad to have. We have wine even in this country, for our soil grows grapes and the sun ripens them, but this drinks like nectar and ambrosia all in one. I then gave him some more. Three times did I fill the bowl for him, and three times he, did he drain it without thought or heed. Then, when I saw that the wine had got into his head, I said to him in, as plausibly as I could, Cyclops, you, you ask my name, and I will tell it to you. Give me, therefore, the present you promised me. My name is No Man. This is what my father and my mother and my friends have always called me. But the cruel wretch said that I will eat all No Man's comrades before No Man himself. And will keep no man for the last. This is the present I will make him. As soon as he spoke, he reeled and fell sprawling face upwards on the ground. His great neck hung heavily backwards, and a deep sleep took hold upon him. Presently he turned sick and threw up both wine and the goblets of human flesh on which he had been gorging, for he was very drunk. When I thrust the beam of wood far into the embers to heat it and encourage my men lest any of them should turn faint-hearted. When the wood green, though it was, was about to blaze, I drew it out of the fire glowing with heat and my men gathered round me for heaven had filled their hearts with courage. 
We drove the sharp end of the beam into the monster's eye, and bearing upon it with all of my weight, I kept turning in the round and round and through, and as though I was boring a hole in a ship's plank with an auger, which two men with a wheel and strap could keep on turning as long as they chose. Even thus did we bore the red-hot beam into his eye till the boiling blood bubbled all over it as we worked it round and round so that the steam from the burning eyeball scalding, scalded his eyelids and the eyebrows and the roots of the eye sputtered in the fire as a blacksmith plunges an axe or a hatchet into cold water to temper it, for it was this that gives strength to the iron, and it makes a great hiss as he does so. Even thus did the cyclops' eye hiss round the beam of olive wood, and his hideous yells made the cave ring again. We ran away in a fright, but he plucked the beam all besmirched with gore from his eye, and hurled it from him in a frenzy of rage and pain, shouting as he did so, so the other cyclopes who lived on the bleak headlands near him. So they gathered from all quarters round the cave when they heard him crying and asked what was the matter with him. What ails you, Polyphemus, said they, that you make such a noise, breaking the stillness of the night and preventing us from being able to sleep. Surely no man is carrying off to your sleep, Surely no man is trying to put you either by fraud or by force. But Polyphemus shouted to them from inside the cave, No man is killing me by, by fraud. No man is killing me by force. Then, said they, if no man is attacking you, you must be ill. When Zeus makes people ill, there is no help for it. And you had better pray to your father Poseidon. Then they went away. And I laughed inwardly at the success of my clever strategy. But the Cyclops, groaning and in agony of pain, felt about with his hands till he found the stone and took it from the door. Then he sat in the doorway and stretched his hands in front of it to catch anyone going out with the sheep. For he thought I might be foolish enough to, tempt the, to attempt this. As for myself, I kept on puzzling to think how I could best save my own life and those of my companions. I schemed, and I schemed, as one who knows that his life depends upon it, for the danger was very great. In the end, I deemed that this plan would be the best. The male sheep were well-grown and carried a heavy black fleece, so I bound them noisily, noiselessly in the, tree, in the trees together, with some of the uh, withies on which the wicked monster used to sleep. There was to be a man under the middle sheep, and the two on either side were to cover him, so that there, would be, there were three sheep for each man. As for me, there was a ram, finer than any of the others, so I caught hold of him by the back, escounced myself in the thick wool under his belly, and hung on patiently to his fleece, face upwards, keeping a firm hold on it all the time. Thus... Then did we wait in great fear of mine till morning came. But when the child of morning, rosy-fingered dawn, appeared, the male sheep 
hurried out to feed while the ewes remained bleeding about the pens waiting to be milked, for their udders were full to bursting. Then their master, in spite of all of his pain, felt the backs of the sheep as they stood upright without being sharp enough to find out that the men were underneath their bellies. As the ram was going out, last of all, heavy with its fleece and with the weight of my crafty self, Polythemus laid hold of it and said, My good ram, what is it that makes you the last to leave my cave this morning? You are not wont to let the ewes go before you, but lead the mob with a run, whether to flowery mead or bubbling fountain, and are the first to come home again at night. But now you lag last of all. Is it because you know your master has lost his eye? And are you sorry because that wicked nomad had and his horrid crew has gotten him down in his drink and blinked him, blinded him. But I will have his life yet. If you could understand and talk, you would tell me where the wretch is hiding, and I would dash his brains upon the ground till they flew all over the cave. I should thus have some satisfaction for the harm this no-good no-man has done to me. As he spoke, he drove the ram outside, and when we were a little way out from the cave and yards, I first got from under the belly's, from under the ram's belly, and then freed my comrades. As for the sheep, which were very fat, by constantly heading them in the right direction, we managed to drive them down to the ship. The crew rejoiced greatly at seeing those of us who had escaped death, but wept for the others whom the Cyclops had killed. However, I made signs to them by nodding and frowning that they were to hush their crying and told them to get all the sheep on board at once and put out to sea. So they went aboard, took their places, and smote the gray sea with their oars. Then, when I had got as far out as my voice could reach, I began to jeer at the Cyclops. Cyclops, said I, you should have taken better measure of your men before eating up his comrades in your cave. You wretch, eat up your visitors in your own house. You might have known that your sin would find you out. And now Zeus and the other gods have punished you. He got furious, or he got more and more furious as he heard me. So he tore the top from the high, high off a mountaintop and flung it just in front of my ship so that it was within a little of a hitting, hitting end of the rudder. The sea quaked as the rock fell into it, and the wash of the wave it raised carried us back towards the mainland and forced us towards the shore. But I snatched up a long pole, and I kept the ship off of it, making signs to my men by nodding my head, and they must row for their lives, whereon they lay out with a, with a will. When we got twice as far as we were before, I was for jeering at the Cyclops again, but my men begged and prayed of me to hold my tongue. Do not, they exclaimed, be mad enough to provoke his sa this savage creature further. He has thrown one rock at us already, which drove us back again to the mainland, and we made sure it had been the death of us. If he had then heard any further sound of voices, he would have pounded our heads and our ship's timbers into a jelly with the rugged rocks he would have heaved us at, for he can throw them that long way. But I wouldn't listen to them, and shouted out to him in my rage, 
Cyclops, if anyone asked you who it was that put your eye out and spoiled your beauty, say it was the valiant warrior Odysseus, son of Lerartes, who lives in Ithaca. I'm curious what all of y'all think. Did Odysseus and his men have it coming? I mean, to be sure, Odysseus isn't the kind of person I would want in Jedi ranks. He's got a terrible personality and, frankly, believes himself to be more important than he really is. I'm sure all the drunkards listening in on his tales were toasting to all of his boasting. Polythemus, by the way, bellowed to his father, Poseidon, after this, and Poseidon took his side on the matter. As a result, Odysseus's journey home after the Trojan War became a 10-year-long fiasco. Anyways, we know that at the top of the list is that Odysseus doesn't care for the law at all. And by this, I'm not really talking about a law in the sense of legality. I mean the kinds of laws that are universally accepted amongst civilized people. Well, by modern terms. Before this story even begins, we see Odysseus pillaging and raping the women of a village. So... He doesn't really care. Then he and his men see the Cyclops cave and assume it's theirs for the taking. I mean, at least Odysseus does try to not do anything, but he sacrifices some of the stuff that's in there to the gods that was supposed to be the Cyclops without actually asking. So he just doesn't really care. He thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. So, Odysseus recounts that he suspected Polyphemus wouldn't respect right or law. And uh, as a result, it kind of erupts in his face when he gives him a chance. But, see, this is kind of where Odysseus probably messed up. Not just in taking the food. I'm pretty sure that there was enough in there from the description that maybe he wouldn't have even noticed that that's what they had done. It's actually the answer that Odysseus gives Polyphemus that may have been exactly why Polyphemus decides to kill him and his men. If he believes, that is, if Polyphemus believes, that Poseidon sent Odysseus to the island, and Polyphemus and Poseidon have similar ideas of justice, Odysseus' boasting of his and his men's exploits may have sealed their fate giving Polyphemus the idea that perhaps it was Poseidon's intention that Odysseus and his men were an evil which needed to be eliminated. That is, if he had said, yeah, we're traitors and we're here to trade, maybe he would have had his life spared. But we can never really know. Since we're only given Odysseus' side of the story, yeah, we're never going to know Polyphemus' intentions. But that's just the nature of how narration works, right? What works in Odysseus' favor, however, is a lesson to the Jedi. He remains objective in, in, uh, as he takes in information around him. He recognizes that nothing's going to stop Polyphemus from killing the lot of them and forms a plan to get him and his, uh, well, at least what remain of his men, out of the situation. Thus, we get the card Defend. Using dishonesty, which is our protagonist's defense art, Odysseus lures, uh, lures Polyphemus into a state that gives him the advantage. Hmm. Actually, you know what? I probably need to expand on that point a little bit. 
so first off, how is it his defense art? Well, okay, I guess I've got to go into a couple of other works here. Homer is not the only person that wrote about the Trojan War, and Odysseus doesn't just feature in Homer's works. According to Quintius Samarinius, uh, Sim, uh, I guess that's how you would say that last name, uh, his work in Post-Homerica, it was Odysseus who came up with the idea of the Trojan horse. So we find that Odysseus's role in the Trojan War was to be the tactician drawing on tactics used by thieves and tricksters. It might seem a bit strange to call dishonesty his quote-unquote defense art, especially since in common day we are quick to feel like these tactics are dishonorable. But hopefully, you know, with the Trojan horse concept there, you can see that there may be some honor in it. But as they say, all is fair in love and war, right? No, not exactly. Dishonesty, like anything else, must be held accountable to ethical and moral construction, constructions. In the Star Wars fiction, we see dishonest tactics used against the Empire in order to protect an asset to the galaxy's future. Can you think of any incidents that I might be able to name off here? I'm, I'm going to give you a second. Let's see if any of these came to mind. Waving your hand and saying these aren't the droids you're looking for was employed by the first Jedi Master introduced to the world in 1977. Han Solo... Tell, tries to tell the Death Star security that everything is okay right after he kills off the stormtroopers. Vader is said to have killed Anakin later on with the addition of from a certain, certain point of view. Instead of telling Luke that he's going to be rescuing his sister, Obi-Wan leaves that little tidbit out, which we might argue is actually a key to helping Luke find a sense of altruism rather than doing something because he believes he got, he's got some familial obligation. The Jedi are seen multiple times keeping information to the belt in order to turn the tables. They have to hide themselves on missions in order to gain the upper hand. We see that as they sneak aboard the Death Star and dodge for cover all the time. While you and I may see this as honorable because the objective is honorable, it's nonetheless the employment of dishonesty with applied lines drawn in the sand of what is acceptable and what is not. So, the Sith of the fiction, as a counter, used dis dishonesty in ways that we find contrary to good ethics and morals. In Star Wars Resistance, we find that the First Order, which um, we learn later on in the movies is run by a Sith, has been hiding, creating a much better version of the Death Star. And then we... And they do whatever they can to ensure no one can find out about it, going as far as a genocide of an entire people for their planet's resources to create the weapon. But let's stop harping on the fictional world and talk about the real world for a moment. Dishonesty is used throughout history to protect people from their enemies, as well as in righteous war. It is also used to protect evil people and in unrighteous war. Some examples of how... You could probably use it in uh, a good way. Hmm, let's see. Possibly the two most well-known uses of dishonesty for good is, uh, let's see, Anne Frank's host, 
doing whatever they could to keep her out of the hands of the Nazis. And the Underground Railroad, which relied on men and women across the U.S. to keep secrets and find ways to hide victims of slavery as they worked their way to achieve freedom. Righteous revolutions require people to amass in secret until they can be trained well enough to be, to be a force which could secure a future for their people. But on the other side, by our moral standards today, we have people like Osama bin Laden, who was hidden by those that believed in his cause after 9-11. We have terrorist cells in the U.S., not necessarily all Muslim, so uh, there, there are other terrorist cells out there in the U.S., and they're right-wing, and some of them are left-wing. Anyways, uh, they work in secret so that when the opportunity arises, they can seize the world and turn it into whatever they want it to be. Anonymous users can seed both good information into the world and seed discord amongst their sphere of influence in the darkness of the, of the internet. Dishonesty is not a defense art to take lightly, especially as a Jedi. Without strong morals and ethics, and then the integrity to stand by those morals and ethics, no matter what, you risk falling to the dark side. As such, I strongly advise against cultivating it outside of highly structured organizations that can legally do something about you stepping out of line. A couple of examples, if you can't think of any, is the military special forces and police detectives. These are two careers I can think of where it would be allowed, but you have to be within their structure and you can be easily held accountable, you know, as long as they're not corrupt. So... Yeah, integrity is a huge thing there. Loyalty to the Jedi Code, people. I am, and I hope you're recognizing that I'm throwing out a bunch of things in the Jedi Compass. I'm just not saying, hey, this is in the Jedi Compass. Anyways, returning to Odysseus, he uses his defense art to defend his men against Polyphemus. But in the end, he, he is found to be in violation of the first two lines of the Jedi Code. He doesn't seek to be at peace with getting away, and he rejects the wisdom, or knowledge, as the second line would put it, of his crew, and hollers out his name to Polyphemus. Which is where we find ourselves with the final card, Embrace Overconfidence. We know this is overconfidence because during the story, Odysseus tells us that he believes the gods have been in control of everything up to this point. But more than that, we might surmise that Odysseus believes that Polyphemus, Polyphemus's own hubris, that the Cyclops are equal with the gods, will prevent the gods from, calling, from coming to Polyphemus's aid. Could any of this have been prevented? In truth, the only thing that may have prevented the events on the Cyclops island is if Odysseus had not embraced the desire to know about the Cyclops and simply left them alone. It wouldn't have made him a better person, but it certainly would have prevented a lot of problems down the line. All in all, Odysseus would have to have a lot of work if he ever hoped to become a Jedi, let alone a Jedi Knight. Fortunately, today we have much better examples to draw from, and hopefully by listening to this episode, you can use Odysseus and his crew as the white end of the compass needle and using those better examples as the red needle to awaken the night within.